Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. This month we'll be sniffing out the evolutionary histories of ants' chemosensory proteins and having a look at a clever new algorithm for understanding the underlying causes of disease syndromes. Ants are social insects, and as such they rely heavily on a robust method of communication, smell. They also rely on smell to sniff out food, mates and predators. As such, the gene families responsible for this so-called chemosensation are of particular interest to biologists. Gene families can spring up quite quickly through duplication events, just as they can contract through gene loss. Jona Kolmany of Ola University in Finland and her workers track the evolution of these gene families through seven species of ant. I gave her a call and started off by asking how genes change over time. Genomes change over time by single nucleotide mutations, but also there are larger scale duplications and deletions. And the whole genome can also be duplicated. Gene families are a set of similar genes that have been born from a single ancestral gene. So they've been duplicated over time from the same gene. And they are usually involved in similar tasks, but have specified perhaps in in certain tasks. One example is chemosensory genes, which are involved in chemical communication and sensing the environment. Okay, and so the number of these different um, duplicated variants is called the copy number, and that is highly variable even within a species, let alone across similar species. Yes, and this is something that only now through these genome sequencing projects has become uh, so apparent that even within a species there can be large copy number variations. Okay, and this is more than just a curiosity then to the people sequencing these genomes, because this variation could have a serious impact on a species' adaptation to its environment. Exactly. And you can imagine that if a functional gene is duplicated, fine-tuning or diversifying its function is a lot easier than kind of starting to build new gene from scratch. Right, so it's almost giving rise then to the raw material for new gene function. Yes. Okay, so the um, the gene variants that you were looking at were these chemosensory proteins in ants. Now, ants use chemicals for a lot of stuff, right? Yes. Ants are social insects. So in a way, they add an extra layer of complexity compared to other animals. So ants need to communicate to a large group of individuals in order to coordinate the actions of the whole colony. And they can send signals 
when they notice someone intruding the nest or the queen can send queen signals saying that I am the queen and the egg layer of this colony and so on. So there is a lot of communication going on. Okay, so I presume you haven't got exquisitely preserved ant genomes. I mean, how are you tracking the genome evolution over you know millions of years? So the first thing to do is to try and find these genes from the genomes. What you do is you take a chemosensory protein that is known from other insects and search similar sequences from ant genomes. And through that, I could find several chemosensory protein genes from each ant species. And what you can do then is compare these genes between the ant species and see that, okay, some genes are similar and they actually are the same gene within all the ant species. But then you can also see that there are genes that are specific to some of the species and they've been duplicated only in that species. So you can calibrate on the species tree and kind of pinpoint there in which point of the ant species tree genes have been duplicated. Okay, then, so what did you see across the whole of the chemosensory proteins in these seven species of ants that you looked at? Well, what we found out was that part of the genes are well conserved and they are the same genes in all of these seven species. And possibly these genes have similar functions within all the species. But then part of the genes had been duplicated in each ant lineage individually. And, and, and do you know anything about what those specific genes are actually doing for the ant? So that you could look at by, for example, looking at the expression of these genes or doing some functional studies. There is very little known about that in ants. But some of the genes have been linked to nestmate recognition, which obviously is very important for ants not to let intruders in the nest. And it seems that these genes that have been duplicated in several ant species, that they originate from the copy that is functioning in nestmate recognition. So through that, uh, you could speculate that perhaps also these duplicated genes are involved in ant chemical communication. But that remains to be seen. Yes. Is that your next project? So we actually do have a follow-up project currently under review in another journal trying to deduce something about the function of these genes and also trying to look at which parts of the protein have been affected by natural selection. And that we try to look at through comparative protein modeling. And did these genes that had this rapid turnover show any signs of positive selection upon them? Yes, they did. And that exactly was the case that the recently duplicated genes show signs of positive natural selection, but the older conserved genes do not. Do you think you've, you've learnt any general lessons about the role of gene duplication in adaptive evolution? Well, obviously they are important. And through gene duplications, 
new gene functions can arise rapidly and that can allow for faster adaptation. Also, now that people are analyzing gene families and gene families within genomes, through my analysis it came apparent that gene families themselves are not necessarily homogeneous and there are different modes of evolution within a gene family as well. Now, there are thousands of ant species on the planet, so do you think that this family of um, rapidly evolving chemosensory proteins is responsible for some of that diversity? Perhaps, yes. I've thought the chemosensory genes in the context of ant communication, but it's true that they most likely also relate to speciation. As new species are born, they have to adapt into different kind of scent environments, for example, in finding food or, or finding a habitat. So in, in that sense, yes, these are probably involved in speciation and through that in, in the number of, of species present. That was Jauna Kulmini of Ola University in Finland. Next up, we'll be speaking to a scientist who wrote a symphony. Now, before you kick back and make yourself comfortable, I should warn you, it's an algorithm. Murali Ramanavin of the State University of New York wrote the symphony algorithm to weed out the underlying causes of disease syndromes, something which, given their constellation of symptoms, has been very hard to do up to now. Here he is. A syndrome is a combination of signs and symptoms that are associated with a morbid process. Typically, syndromes occur with multiple symptoms, and the individual symptoms themselves may occur in other diseases, but it's the co-occurrence of these symptoms uh, that might constitute a syndrome. As an example, a prototypical example actually is metabolic syndrome, which is a fairly uh, frequent situation. And as I note in the paper, 25% of the U.S. population is thought to be affected by metabolic syndrome. And in metabolic syndrome, you have a combination of hyperglycemia, high blood pressure, central obesity, and low HDL. So you can sort of think of a syndrome as a disease complex. Okay, and so the big challenge with that then, I guess, is that you have such a complicated interaction of environmental factors and genetic factors, and it's hard to see the wood for the trees and find out what's the underlying cause of a a syndrome. With respect to syndromes, there are three main problems. Uh, Two of those problems are shared with all gene-gene and gene-environment interaction problems across different phenotypes. The first is you need good metrics to find interactions. Secondly, you need to be able to search effectively and efficiently because what happens is that the number of combinations of genes and environmental factors that you can look at increases very, very rapidly due to something called combinatorial explosion. And the other part of this is when you're looking at uh, interactions in a very large data set, you really do not know what the underlying relationship is between the genetics and the phenotype that you're looking at. So you really need a method that's non-parametric. It does not presuppose a very strong model so that you can detect and find interesting combinations no matter how they are associated with the phenotype. 
And finally, I think that one of the unique things that happens with syndromes is the fact that the individual constituents of the syndromes may be related to each other in linear or nonlinear ways. For example, somebody who's uh, obese might have um, low HDL and high LDL. So you can sort of see that there is an underlying relationship that you can already see between obesity and the lipid profile there. So you really need a method that is capable of uh, addressing these linear or nonlinear relationships among the subphenotypes in the syndrome. Okay, so you were kind of geared towards finding an integrated analysis of the overall syndrome phenotype, right? That's correct. So we defined a syndrome uh, mathematically as a vector phenotype. In this particular paper, uh, we used a relatively straightforward uh, mathematical framework of assuming a multivariate vector phenotype. So essentially, instead of looking at a single uh, quantitative trait, we look at a vector of multiple quantitative traits. So let me get this straight. What you've actually built then is a shiny new kind of algorithm that mines these gene-gene interactions from these huge data sets. That is correct. So we've developed an algorithm for searching and identifying gene-gene and gene-environment interactions in the context of syndromes. And, uh, and you've built it. Does it work? I mean, have you tested it against any real data? I read that you'd run some simulations. Uh, so a lot of our simulations have been done in the context of real data. So we do not simulate the genetic data uh, as such. We use uh, experimental genetic data. But what we do in order to test our algorithm is we uh, seed the genetic data with interactions to phenotypes that we define. So we, have, we try to capture the best of both worlds. We use real, quote-unquote, real genetic data. And uh, at the same time, we have a situation where we know the ground truth so that we can challenge and test our uh, method better. And what do you think is going to be your first sort of real-world great success then with this method? Have you got your eyes on any particular syndrome? I think that uh, metabolic syndrome is going to be uh, one of the the things that we'd be most interested in looking at because I think uh, it's a situation that affects you know, a large segment of the population. And I think that it's a situation where uh, large data sets are potentially available from uh, from a variety of sources. So I think that we will be able to address the issues of uh, replication across different populations, things like that. And apart from it being a sort of very clever example of applied statistics, I mean, how do you think it's going to change the way that medicine's done, I mean, in terms of treatment of syndromes? I think that from the standpoint of trying to understand syndromes, uh, we need to sort of figure out what the, the common mechanism or the common cause is. I think that every time we uh, go out and look at, uh, at the genetic associations with, uh, that corresponding to, to individual uh, constituent phenotypes in the syndrome, I think we'll get distracted. I think that we really need to be looking for master mechanisms that drive all of these different subphenotypes in the syndrome. So the primary motive for all this is to find underlying mechanisms behind you know, the the constellation of phenotypes in a syndrome. Is this based on the premise that all syndromes have 
an underlying mechanism? So we don't make that assumption uh, uh, in our method, but our goal really is to try to find that master mechanism, the master key that will uh, potentially drive uh, the whole process, uh, the pathobiological process. So we're not, no, we're not assuming that. However, our method is looking at the constellation of phenotypes um, as a group. But if there is one, you'd like to find it? If there is one, we would like to find it. That was Murali Romanavin at the State University of New York. And that's it for this month. Join us again next month for another episode of the Heredity Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.